And so I thought I should just explain to you for a minute what this is about. It's really, the, the service overall isn't that different than what we normally do on a Sunday, but we are going to be dedicating some babies uh, a little later in the service. And some of you maybe have come from a tradition, a church tradition, where babies are baptized. And uh, we, so we don't baptize infants here, we don't baptize babies um, and the reason is that baptism is a way for a person to publicly confess their allegiance to Jesus and to proclaim their trust and faith in Jesus and, and to sort of put on display what God has done in their life. That's what baptism is. It's, it's, it's about our union with Jesus through faith. And so we believe that a person is saved through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for their salvation. That's what we believe. And so we, we think that someone should choose to be baptized based on their trust in Jesus. We don't believe that baptism saves a person. We believe that it's faith that saves a person. And so we don't baptize children. Although children do, do um, get baptized here if they've put their faith in Jesus and they want, they want to go public with that faith. And so that's sort of the difference. That's how we see it in the scriptures. We see a, a pattern in the New Testament where people decide to follow Jesus and then they're baptized. And so we are trying to follow that pattern as a church. Um, and, but we do take seriously um, the, the giving of life. And so that's why we, we dedicate our children to the Lord. And today's message actually is about that. I hope that after you hear today's message, you'll understand a little more why we dedicate babies to the Lord. So we've been in a series called Risk over the last couple weeks. And we're going to talk more about risk today. And then we're going to wrap it up next week. And each week we've talked about what are some of the obstacles that keep us from taking risks in our life? And just how important risk-taking is to following Jesus. And, and really, that's what following Jesus is largely about. It's about taking risks and trusting God with the outcome. That's what it means to follow Jesus in many ways. And so we've talked about how control, a desire for control, keeps us from taking risks in life. Last week, we talked about how anxiety in our hearts keeps us from taking risks in our life. If you, are, if you have anxiety in your heart, you're going to have a very hard time taking risks. You're going to have a very hard time embracing joy in your life. Well, today we're going to talk about how pain keeps us from taking risks in life. This last Monday, I was asked to—Crosspoint uh, Church actually has a softball team, for those of you who didn't know. And I used to play on that softball team for many, many years, and I sort of retired a few years ago when <clears throat> my son started playing baseball on Monday nights. That was the excuse I gave. And— um, I, actually, I was getting older and everything, and I still love to play. So I was asked by Matt if I could play softball on Monday, and I said, I looked at my schedule and it was free, and so I said, okay, sure. And I knew it, was a, it would be a risk for me to play softball because it wouldn't be that, to take that much for me to humiliate myself on a softball field. So I get out there and start playing softball, and um, at, during the second game, the team manager decided to put me at shortstop. And I haven't played softball in years. I mean, I might have subbed a couple years ago or a few years ago. but So shortstop is a pretty active position. It's the position I played for many years. But I was thinking, man, this could get ugly. And uh, before too long, a ball was hit at me very hard. And it bounced, like, almost right in front of me. And it, it skipped underneath my glove, and it hit me right in the shin. Like, just right in the shin bone. And, and bounced in front of me. And... It hurt a lot. <laughs> I didn't act like it at the time. I acted all tough and everything, but it hurt, okay? And I went over back on the bench, and there's this huge knot in my leg, and uh, it's been bruised all week. It still hurts a little bit. So anyway, 
After that happened, I was like, okay, if another ball comes at me like that, I'm turning this way. I don't want that to happen again. Because what if it hit me in the same spot? I might fall down and start crying or something. And, and that's sort of how we go through life. When we, get, when we experience pain in our life, and now I'm talking about emotional pain more than anything, when we experience a painful relationship or the ending, ending of a relationship, when we experience a painful loss in our life or some kind of emotional pain, our natural instinct is to avoid that pain at all costs in the future because we know how bad it hurts and it keeps us from taking that risk again. That's exactly how we work as human beings. It's how we think. It's how we live. But that's not what the life that we're called to live. In fact, if we're afraid of pain and that pain keeps us from taking risks in life, we're going to end up missing out on life and we're going to end up wasting our life. That's what's going to happen. And I wanted to remind you this morning, I think I've shared this quote with you before, of this great quote from one of the greatest thinkers of our generation, Chuck Norris. And this is what he said. Today we live in a culture that promotes comfort, not challenges. Everything is about finding ways to escape hardship, avoid pain, and minimize risk. And that's true. That's the culture that we live in today. And so this morning I wanted to share with you a, an amazing story from God's Word about a woman who changed the course of a, of a nation. And this story is found in the book of 1 Samuel. And the, book, the two books of Samuel are really unique in that they, they're really written in the hero genre of ancient literature. They're all about heroes. And so some of you comic book uh, enthusiasts, those of you who love you know, Marvel and DC movies and stuff like that, you would really love these two books of the Bible because they talk about these great heroes of God, these avengers of God. And the biggest hero in those two books, of course, is King David. But before King David, there was a woman named Hannah. And without Hannah, there is no King David. Without Hannah, there's no Samuel. I mean, without Hannah... Quite frankly, the nation of Israel has a much different history. And so we're going to read about Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel. And I want to give you sort of a, a brief summary of the first few verses, and then we'll start reading from, reading from the text. But there was this man named Elkanah, and he had two wives. The first wife was Hannah, and his second wife was Peninnah. And by the way, I don't know if I'm pronouncing those right. I just act like I do. Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. And Elkanah was a good man. Every, time, every single year, Elkanah would take the 15-mile journey up to Shiloh, which 15 miles on foot with his whole family. It's two wives, all their kids. They're all of his and Peninnah's kids. And they would go up to worship the Lord at the temple. So he would make this a priority to take his kids with him and offer sacrifices and worship and spend some time there. And that was his way of passing on his faith to his kids. It was, a, it was important to him to pass his faith on to his kids and he was a good man. And every year they went up to, to Shiloh and were told very early on that Elkanah loved his wife Hannah and he went out of his way to, to show her that he loved her. He, 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 she was really his, his treasured possession. He, he loved her more than his other wife. And one of the things that made Hannah unique was that the Lord had closed her womb. God kept her from having any children. It was God that did that. The text tells us that a couple times. And not only was she infertile, but Elkanah's other wife, who had children, Peninnah, would mock Hannah and provoke her and irritate her and bully her and remind her, I'm the one who has kids, you don't have any kids, and humiliate her. And it got so bad that Hannah would stop eating. 
And that, now we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 9 and 10. This is what the text says. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. So I want to talk about Hannah's pain for a couple minutes, because this is a very unique kind of pain. Have you ever had your appendix removed? Some of you have had your appendix removed. Did you ever need to go to therapy after that to figure out how to live with your, without an appendix? Probably not. How about your tonsils? Anyone in here have your tonsils removed? Did, did, that, did, that, did life without tonsils create an emotional burden for you that you've carried for the rest of your life? I mean, because think about it. You lose your appendix, you lose your tonsils, you can still live a fully functional, normal life. So why is it that if your reproductive system doesn't work, it's so different, it's so much different? Why is it that if your reproductive system doesn't work, you live a life of pain and, and want and suffering? Why is it so different? You know, the, the truth is that women who experience infertility carry such immense pain with them, it's been carried, it's been compared with someone who's been through the pain of a divorce or someone who's living with a terminal illness. That's how severe this pain is or how severe it can be. And the reason is that everyone just assumes fertility. Everyone just assumes that you'll be able to have kids. Nobody is ever ready to hear that you will never be able to have children of your own. Nobody's ever ready to hear that, ever. And when they hear that, it's a crushing blow. And it's not fair, really, because when you're terminally ill, for example, people shower you with, with uh, comfort and encouragement and hugs and cards and flowers. If you were to die, people would send cards and flowers and support your family. But when you're unable to have children, nobody really knows what to do. <laughs> they don't know how to comfort you. You don't get cards and flowers usually. You don't get a bunch of hugs. But the pain is the same. The pain is just as real. The grief is the same. And in fact, there is a death. It's the death of a dream. It's the death of a hope of having a child. That's the kind of pain we're talking about. It's a very unique and intense kind of pain. And... There's a lot of suffering, a lot of waiting, a lot of crying. And Hannah's pain is probably worse than you think. Because in Hannah's culture, you, nobody chose not to have children. In our culture, people choose not to have kids, right? And that's okay. It's perfectly acceptable. In Hannah's culture, nobody did that. This was not an individualistic culture. This is a family culture. Okay, having kids is the way you succeed in life. If you had kids... You were more economically stable. It's kind of the opposite today, isn't it? Uh, but in that day, if you had a lot of kids, you had a bigger workforce. You were more productive. You could carry on the family business. You could pass on the farm and the land and the inheritance onto your kids. You were just more stable, more, more widely uh, respected. Your, your status was greater the more kids you had. It was the way to achieve success in ancient culture was to have a lot of kids. Not only that, but if you didn't have any kids, you would have no one to take care of you in your old age. 
the mortality rate was very high in ancient times. Four out of ten children, or I'm sorry, four out of, yeah, four out of ten children did not reach adulthood. So the more kids you had, the better odds there were that you would be well taken care of in your old age. And so everyone was having a lot of kids back then. It was the way to strengthen a nation. That's where, your, that's where your, your military support came from, was families with lots of children. And so there's all of, these, all of these reasons that people were having lots and lots of kids in ancient times. Nobody ever chose to not have kids. In our culture, the, probably the biggest difference between our culture and the ancient culture that we're reading about today is that in our culture, the individual is everything. Your individual dreams is what, are what matter most. So you can choose to do whatever you want to do. Get married, not get married. Have children, not get, have children. It's up to you. You can, you can not get married and not have children and still enjoy a very successful life and still go very far in life. In ancient times, that was not the case. The individual wasn't important. Family was important. Family was everything. And so for Hannah, this is disgraceful. If you didn't have children or you weren't able to have children as a woman in ancient culture, everyone assumed you were cursed by God. And her rival, this other woman, her her husband's other wife, is continually reminding her of her infertility. There's immense pressure on women to have children back then and even today. There's pressure, let's face it, there's pressure on women to have children today too. Right? It's not that different. It's part of your identity as a woman, really. Many women find their worth and value in their children. Right? And so if they can't have children, it shatters their identity. And that's a huge problem. For some women, having children becomes the thing that saves you. It becomes the thing that gives you your worth and value, and that's why this is such a big deal. And here's what I love about Hannah. Even though she is miserable about her condition, she doesn't let that misery define her. She's hoping in God. She trusts in God. In fact, it is her faith in God that changes the course of Israel's history. Hannah's influence on Israel as a nation came not through conquest or personal strength, but through the gentleness of a quiet spirit and faith and motherhood. So this passage teaches us that true power doesn't come through position or rank, but through one's posture before God. That's what this is about. So let's keep reading in the text. Um, 1 Samuel 1 again, beginning in verse 9. Once they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Hannah stood up, it says. Now this, we're told by commentators, this is, a, this is an idiom, a Hebrew idiom, which means it's a figure of speech. So it'd be like me saying, uh, sometimes I, you know, I talk about my wife, Vicky. She put her foot down, right? I'm not saying that she literally, you know, put her foot down. I'm saying that she stood up for something that she cared about. She put her foot down, you know? I wanted to go to Burger King for dinner, and she put her foot down, you know? Something like that. Well, this is saying that Hannah is... In this pain and misery, okay, she hadn't been eating. The other family members had finished eating, and she decided enough is enough. I'm not going to let this pain keep me from living my life anymore. That's what it's saying. That's what the text is saying. She put her foot down. 
she got up. And she see, and Eli the priest is sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. And in bitterness of soul, Hannah takes her misery, right? And she goes to God. She weeps and she prays to the Lord. And this is what she did. This is what she said. She made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. So Hannah, she takes her pain and she says, enough is enough. I'm going to take my pain to God and I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to let my pain consume me or define me anymore. And now she's ready to take a risk. Because she hasn't heard anything from God to this point. She's been going to the temple year after year after year and pleading with God, God, please help me in my distress. Please, I, I don't have a child. I don't know who I am. Please remember me, hear me. And she's, God has been silent year after year and nothing had changed. But she doesn't give up on God. She continues to trust him and continues to hope in him. And she believes that God can hear her and that only God can answer her. And so she takes this huge risk and she says, God, if you will give me a child, I will give him back to you. I will give him back to you. I will give up my dream of raising him. I will give up the ideal that he will grow up in my home under my care. I will give up the joy of seeing him grow every month and standing him up against the doorpost and marking with a chalk line, you know, his, his development and his growth, like a lot of moms do. I'll give up the joy of tucking him in every night and reading him a story or praying with him. I'll give up the pleasure of giving, and, and giving him hugs and kisses every day and receiving affection from him. I'll give up the opportunity to, to be the apple of his eye as his mom. I'll give up having him home during the holidays. I'll give up the satisfaction of going to the marketplace with all the other women and their children and talking about our kids and seeing our kids play together. I'll give that all up. I'll go to the marketplace without any kids and stand out. I'm willing to give that up. I'll just continue going on with life without a child. I'll give them right back to you. I'll give up the hope that someday my son will learn his father's trade and his, inherit his father's land and raise his own family right here and carry on our family traditions. And I'll, and I'll give up the hope that I'll be, you know, close enough to be able to visit him whenever I want to. I'll give it all up, Lord. He's totally yours. I will not keep him from you. This is really what Hannah's prayer is. She says, basically, Lord, all my life I've wanted to have a child for me. But now, Lord, I want to have a child for you. That's really what she's praying for. So, Lord, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. If, if I was asking a child for me, I wouldn't have any peace until you answered my prayer. But, God, since I'm asking a child for you, however you choose to answer this prayer is fine with me. I, I'm at peace. The text goes on. In verse 12, as she kept praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and he said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. This could also be translated anxiety and vexation. 
Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. So something changed there. After she talks to Eli, after she prays, something changed. She changed. Her heart changed. She had peace. She talks to Eli. Eli's her spiritual leader. He's her pastor, sort of, even though he turns out not to be a good pastor. But she still respects him as her spiritual leader, and she humbles herself and tells him about her need. And when Eli pronounces peace and grace over her, she's filled with peace. She gets up. She leaves. She eats. Her sadness is gone. And I don't know exactly what happened there, but her anxiety is replaced with peace about the future. She's no longer anxious about the future. And she doesn't know the outcome yet. She's chosen to risk it all on God. And she walks away with peace even though she doesn't know what the outcome will be. And this is really important for you to see because she's not pregnant yet. In other words, the peace comes before the pregnancy. She has peace and then she gets pregnant. It's not the other way around. She doesn't wait for God to answer her before she finds peace in God. That's important. And so early the next morning, this is what it says in verse... Uh, oh, I lost my place here, excuse me. In verse 19, early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So here's how the story ends. Hannah worships God. God answers Hannah's prayer. And three years later, about, she probably took her about three years to nurse and wean the child. She goes back to Shiloh with Samuel and says this to Eli. This This would be in verse 26. As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. That's Samuel worshiped the Lord there. He's probably three years old, and he's worshiping the Lord at the temple. And she's, she's basically given him over to the priesthood to be a prophet, to be a servant of the Lord the rest of his days. That's his whole life now. The rest, as a, he's going to be trained as a young boy of three years old, by the temple servants. She's trusting God that they will provide for his needs. They will take care of her son. They will train him and teach him in the way he should go. She will visit him from time to time, but she's giving him up just like she said she was going to do. To some of you, that sounds insane, doesn't it? I mean, talk about a risk. Who, who, who among moms here would be willing to do that? I'm going to take my three-year-old child to a seminary somewhere. Of course, they would probably turn you away. They wouldn't know what to do with your three-year-old child. But back then it was different. And she took her three-year-old child and committed him to the service of the Lord. That was not a common thing. That was a huge risk. And here's why this passage matters to us today as a church and as families. This is why we're talking about this. Is because these parents are going to come up here in a few minutes. And they're going to give their children to God and commit, him, commit their children to the Lord and get out of the way. That's what baby dedication is. That's what Hannah did. They're saying, we are here to give our children to God. 
and for God to do whatever he wants with them. God, we want you to take our children and adopt them into your family. Give, give my child a new heart and a new mind. Give my child eyes to see you and ears to hear you. Give him a heart that wants to do your will no matter what the cost is. And God, if our child serving you means that we won't get to be involved in their life the way we want to, then help us to just get out of the way. That's what, that's what we're talking about. And just so you know, Hannah wasn't the first person to do this. I mean, God told Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, up to a mountain and sacrifice him. To kill him on a mountain. To show his loyalty to the Lord. That's baby dedication. I mean, Isaac was older, but that's it. That, taking my child, I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do with this child. I'm going to give this child to God for his purposes. And that's exactly what Abraham did. He went up the mountain. He built the altar. He was ready to go through with it until God stopped him. I mean, Moses' mother, who we don't... I bet you nobody in here knows what Moses' mother's name was. We're told in a very obscure text, but Moses' mother... She's not famous, but she did the same thing. She hid him for a couple months, then she wrapped him in this basket and set him off on a river as a baby. Talk about risk. Not knowing what was going to happen, but knowing that God was going to take care of that baby. And you know the story of Moses. That's why, that's why we know about Moses. It's because of his mom. It's because of what she did. That's the only reason we know the name Moses. And then there's Jesus, of course. I mean, that's why we're here. You know, Jesus is the Son of God. You know that God gave His only Son, Jesus, so that we could have peace with Him. God gave His Son. He took a body. He obeyed His Father. He risked His life. He knew what the outcome was going to be. He submitted himself to be crucified, executed in public in a humiliating fashion so that our sin could be forgiven, so that we could have a relationship with our Father God. I mean, God did this first. God promised he was going to do it first. And what we're saying today as families and, and with these parents is we're saying, we're trusting God with our children. God has given us our children as a gift, and he can do whatever he wants with them, and we're here to give our children to him and then get out of, a, get out of the way. We are, not, we are not dedicating these children to the American dream. We're not dedicating them to the parents' personal desires. We are dedicating these children to the living God and asking him to use them for his glory. And that is a risk. To take these vows here today, not every family is comfortable dedicating their children, and maybe that's why, but I believe that what we're about to see here today is a beautiful and powerful act of faith.